Hello everyone and welcome to the Power Passion Podcast. We are with here with a distinguished guest, Dr. David Blacker. How are you doing today? Good to meet you guys. Good to meet you too. Nice to have you on the show. Thank you. Now, this all started with my, uh, I suppose, interest in in psychology and some of the stuff I've been learning on campus. And obviously one thing leads to another, David, and I'm fascinated with human beings and the human mind. Uh, But right in the beginning, I suppose, how did you get into your profession? What's, I suppose, the journey to where you are now? In, in well, a concise yeah, version of it. Look, it's interesting. I mean, when I was a teenager and a uni student, I was interested in psychology as well. I remember um, being interested in um, the whole concept of body and mind and uh, brain and mind. And as a, uh, I must have been in early high school, I remember even going to the local library, reading as many books about this as I possibly could. Um, I even took out Freud's Interpretation of Dreams, mm. a big fat book. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it must have been 14 or something. So I'm from the library. This guy's a bit weird. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I was interested in stuff. One thing I remember out of that book was, um, you know, Freud was a neurologist. He started as a, new, a doctor and a neurologist mm. uh, and then merged into become a psychiatrist. Mm. And uh, one of the very practical things that he did to try and um, remember his dreams. He wanted to wake up in the middle of his dreams so he could write them down. Mm. So he'd uh, eat salty olives uh, that would make him thirsty so he'd wake up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that struck me as a very sort of practical, <laughs> practical wow. thing. And, uh, so, but anyway, I think it led to another, you know, and I, uh, uh, as many good students do, you encourage, in the 80s, you know, it was either, if you're a good student, you did medicine or law. Mm. Um, there didn't seem to be many other choices and I just sort of merged into medicine. Mm. And, um, after they finished, uh, my second job as an intern was a neurosurgical rotation, um, which was just absolutely brilliant. Fascinating stuff, um, 110 hours a week, you know, started in the dark, finished in the dark, but just totally absorbing. And we had, had the privilege of working with a very famous and esteemed neurosurgeon named Brian Stokes, who's still around, um, very, very famous neurosurgeon. And he um, really looked after the, uh, the team. He looked after his patients, number yeah. one. That was mm-hmm. a great thing. And, but he made sure you had the opportunity to go to the theatre and do some participate in the opera, operations. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of standing around as a young doctor, of course, holding stuff, but, you know, you've got to learn a lot of stuff. Yeah, I'll just on that. So I suppose... Oh, excuse me. Something in my eye. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, I suppose just on that, is there a lot of uh, vicarious learning through watching more experienced professionals as you're in that line? Well, it becomes a mentorship, you know. Yeah. Uh, you, the way the structure of medicine is, you, know, you finish your degree, and there's almost double that time to go yeah. you know, in terms of specialty training, and it really becomes an apprenticeship. You have a series of steps, you have a series of exams, uh, but then ultimately after you pass certain steps, it really becomes about being an apprentice. And so um, the way I sort of evolved, you know, I think my second, after my neurosurgery term, I later did psychiatry, and because um, I kind of I had an inkling I wanted to do psychiatry. That was my early early phase. Mm. So I did the neurosurgery, then I did the psychiatry term in the public hospital, and that was a massive contrast to neurosurgery. Mm. You know, it was like you know, start at nine o'clock, you know, everyone has coffee, has a meeting, get laid back, <laughs> <laughs> and I thought I think my supervisor thought, geez, there's something wrong with this. I was like, oh. Super hyper out yeah. The contrast was just so different, and not that I didn't like psychiatry, it was just it was, it was different. And then in the following year, I did a neuro- neurology rotation, and uh, that was right in the middle of those two things. You know, it dealt with the different set of illnesses, but there's lots of overlap. And so for me, neurology is a great mix between the extremes of neurosurgery which is the basic hardware malfunction, mm-hmm. um, to psychiatry with some undefined software stuff. Oh, yeah. Um, whereas neurology is right in the middle of that. You know, mm-hmm. there's you know, defined pathways, there's definite electrics. Mm-hmm. Um, you kind of know the computer, um, and you, you, you fix it with the uh, you know, software upgrades, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> uh, One could only hope. Understanding ourselves as individuals. 
Well, that's a sort of tough and philosophical question. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's very abstract. Yeah. I suppose for right now we're just free thinking. Yeah. It's just an yeah. opinion here. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, look, I think people, I mean, through the lifespan you get to know yourself and you get different level of awareness and comfort. Um, and, you know, I get to observe that in the spectrum of illness, for example. Mm. You know, I'll see someone who comes in, I'm mainly a stroke specialist, and, you know, so suddenly people's lives change in minutes, you know. Mm. Uh, they have a massive impact on their, the way that they think uh, due to the structural abnormalities that have been from the stroke. Yeah. And then on top of that, there's a change in psychological circumstances, there's a glimpse into your mortality, um, there's a, uh, stages of grieving. Mm-hmm. And you, you see patients uh, adapt. The adaptation of the human brain and mind is incredible. And, um, you know, I have the privilege of being able to follow people ad infinitum as long as I need to. Mm-hmm. Um, where sometimes emergency doctors and ICU doctors only see a small glimpse. Mm-hmm. And what I observe is that, um, you know, to a healthy individual, you see someone who's very neurologically damaged, mm-hmm. you know, paralysis or neurological deficits, and you assume that that will be torture. You assume that will be not a way to live. You'd assume that people would not want to live like that. Mm-hmm. But it's incredible how people become accustomed. And I've seen some very devastated individuals uh, make only minimal improvement, uh, but still they have worthwhile, meaningful lives. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's important that you don't project your own interpretation of the situation onto someone else's. Um, so I'm sorry that's a bit roundly. But no, 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 I, I, understand, I understand what you're saying because I suppose that my point of reference would be, in the most simplistic way to put it, I suppose, is is the Vanilla Sky quote, where well, I can't even remember the actor's name. It was the counterpart to Tom Cruise in that movie. And he was saying, um, the sweet isn't so sweet without the bitter. Mm. In the, you know, the main character, Tom Cruise, was all only experiencing the sweet, whereas he was experiencing the bitter. So his, his sweeter moments, per se, were more enriching. Yeah, yeah. I guess that, that uh, to put it another way, would be that um, there has to be some sort of sacrifice in order to feel the, uh, the greater depths of uh, joy, let's say. So there has to be some sort of sacrifice in order to better yourself, in a way. So it has to be either a sacrifice of your time or perhaps even a uh, sacrifice of something else, let's say. Although that's a very interesting philosophical yeah. discussion. I'm it, sure. might it, it might be It might be Yeah, <laughs> well, we'll move right along. We'll move right along. So, um, when it comes to... You mentioned uh, previously off-air with communication with me mm-hmm. uh, that you do deal with... Uh, with Parkinson's disease yes. on, yeah. and on some level. Now, granted, there are cultural figures uh, that do deal with it and have gone through it, but for the, off the top of my head, there's Michael J. Fox, mm-hmm. there's Muhammad Ali, mm-hmm. all these champions. Billy Connolly. Billy Connolly, yeah. yeah. A lot of people go through it. Now, these people, obviously, in their prime, very psychologically tough, and I still feel like I can sense your presence in the room is very strong right now. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know why. I feel as though it's, it's almost undetectable. You're very uh, adept at dealing with the person. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, because um, you know so much about neurology. Yeah, so I mean, it's been a challenge. I, I, you know, I have Parkinson's disease myself, and um, I've sort of come out about it in November, December last year, hmm. and uh, it's been creeping up on me for a couple of years, um, and I needed to get some treatment. And, um, I knew I was slowing down, so my very observant patients noticed it. In fact, before my colleagues, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I had a lot of trouble writing. Okay. As a doctor, there's lots of forms and writing. We don't, we don't have a fully electronic medical record yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's lots of writing and my balance has been going. And, uh, you know, one of the simple tests that you do to, to see if a patient's dexterity is you tap your fingers rapidly. Okay. You know, so there's no good test for Parkinson's disease. Right. It's a combination of clinical findings and mm-hmm. slowness of finger tapping on, on the affected limb. Is, is very characteristic in how to do these things. Mm. And my right hand, which is my dominant hand, yeah, it's very slow. I'm okay. really clumsy and I occasionally get a shake. And, um, so, was it, sorry, I, so the hormone things are yeah, a tremor, of course, of course. A, uh, a stiffness called rigidity mm. in the limbs, and also uh, this thing called bradykinesia, which is a slowness of the movements. Mm. So, those are the hormones. There's lots of other more subtle things, um, but I, I can feel that I knew it was coming, so uh, mm-hmm. I've got one of my colleagues to have a really good proper look at me. Um, mm-hmm. 
the years I want some treatment now, I could. Um, but it has been uh, a big challenge, you know. Uh, um, it struck me, I went to some seminar, a neuroscience seminar last year, you know, the classic, when they talk about diseases, they give an opening paragraph and, you know, and, you know relentless, incurable, neurodegenerative. Right. And when you hear those kind of words, you think, okay, yes. It's tough language. Okay. It's tough language. <laughs> I mean, it's tough for anyone to hear. Just, yeah. Yeah. You know, just doing my day-to-day yeah. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, every now and then I, um, I have become, uh, I kind of use the tablets now to, to actually give myself some uh, improvement in my movements and things. And uh, almost sometimes uh, in really good distracted moments, I almost forget about it. Mm. And then I find myself walking from the office to the ward and think, God, it's hard to walk. Yeah. Um, but thankfully I've got a tablet that might be able to help me. <laughs> okay, yeah. And yeah. I'm kind of in the phase where uh, at the moment there'll be hopefully some response to the tablets for a few mm. years. Yeah. Uh, and I suppose your experience with psychiatry and neurosurgeon, neurosurgical work uh, helps you be more self-aware with your own functioning, in, in a sense? Oh, yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, I've got a movie disorder specialist on the stroke. No. But I, you know, obviously, lots of Parkinson's patients over the years. And uh, um, the, the hardcore patients who are really into major complications and things I'll tend to refer on to my colleagues who are much more specialised in expertise than I have. But, no. um, you know, it's really quite illuminating now to be able to speak to a patient and really fully empathise and understand um, you know, how they're feeling, mm. you know, because I know what it feels like to run out of the tablet. Mm, sure. I know what it feels like to get the side effects of the I know what it feels like to get the benefit. So I, I've been through the whole explaining to people about it and you know, coming, you know, yeah. sort of telling people, revealing yeah. the diagnosis is mm. often emotionally very It's a very intensive thing. thing. Mm. So let's get back onto yeah, this. So sorry, but that's no, no, it's understandable. So your experience with, with stroke, let, let's, I suppose, yeah. divulge and divert back into that. And uh, I, by the way, I'm, I'm very honoured that you so comfortable enough for sharing that. Well, yeah, you appreciate yeah. it. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Mm. So, so yeah. So, I suppose um, onto something wider. Yeah. Now, this this comes out of a self help kind of drama, but there's this idea of neurolinguistic programming. To to summarise, this is like a combination of you know, body language, matching, mirroring, tonality, and you know, eye contact. Yeah. Now, I don't know about. Founder, you could say that he was drinking his own Kool Aid, maybe, and it was a bit of a placebo effect thing, but and that gave him more kind of charisma and confidence, and perhaps that got him a long way in life. The guy did very well for himself. I'm still about halfway through the book. Um, I'll leave a link below if anyone wants to get it, but but yeah, he um. Do you, do you see any values for this kind of stuff? Oh, I'm, I'm not an expertise, yeah. I mean, I've only read superficially about it, so I'm yeah. by no means a an expert on it, but look, I mean, anyone who understands people and thinking and mm. uh, interacts with people in an empathic way mm. um, is going to have a power. Mm. And, uh, um, you know, I mean, just getting back to practical orthodox proven medicine, I, I, I personally think, you know, that the doctor-patient relationship is, is, is incredibly important mm. and therapeutic. Yeah, and not just from psychological. I mean, even a surgeon who's done a very broken, fixed a broken arm mm. can change the experience just by their demeanour and their interaction mm. uh, with the patient. Because, like a lumber, and it's perhaps a little bit politically incorrect, um, doc, patients listen to what doctors say. Yeah. And we say casual things carelessly that stick in people's minds. Mm. Um, so I, I emphasise this to my, my residents and registrars, you know. We often deal with patients on the worst day of their life, mm. and that's when their adrenaline levels are high and everything's amped up. And it's well recognised that you, you embed memories in a much more effective and lasting manner uh, in those sort of circumstances. So, um, kind of like an imprinting thing, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, you know, I mean, just seriously reading about NLP, you know, some of the basic ideas about, you know, body. Uh, Posture and interaction and eye contact, all those are just you know 
almost good, seem almost common sense, really. They do seem common sense. I suppose it's a, it's a good book, I feel, as just, just a basic, well, basic guide for common sense because a lot of millennials, Gen Alphas, Gen Xs, are glued to their phone. Now, is this their fault or no? Mm-hmm. But uh, let's not get into the social media aspect of yes. that. <laughs> so, on to neuroscience. So, given that neuroscience combines a whole range of things, yeah. I'll leave, leave a definition below and a link below if people want to read into it. How do you see that as, I suppose, how you view the world? Because it is a large part of your life. So, uh, for instance, if you're casually just with friends, do you find yourself kind of trying to work out their neurology because you're so you're so in love with your your, your profession, or is it not so much like that? I mean, um, I'm just fortunate to have a job that I'm um, very interested in. Yeah. I mean, I think the subject matter is fantastic, but like any job, you need a break. Mm. I mean, I don't hang out with neurologists. Uh, no. I've got a few other medical friends. That's sure. good. I go play golf. Sure, them. sure. And we don't talk about work. <laughs> yeah. you know, it's occasionally just yeah. get off medicine or yeah, yeah. And they, you know, my wife and I might be sitting in an airport and you see someone who's got a limp or something and oh, you can diagnose it. Yeah. You play like diagnosis. Yeah. Okay, yeah. If you're, you're on a knife and someone's doing a stroke and then you think, oh, not that type of stroke, it's a different type of stroke. Sorry, horrible Thanks joke. for the day. <laughs> but you'll be on a plane and the call goes out for a doctor and, um, you know, you're you are a doctor. I did have a patient, uh, a person who had a, a seizure on, oh, wow. on a plane flight once. And, uh, you know, it was actually quite good to have something while you're expertise to be able to assist, actually. Yeah. Wow, so, but it happens. Mm-hmm. So it does pervade your life. Um, and uh, just to get you back on the neuroscience track, you know, um, I'm probably biased, but I really think the brain is the most interesting thing to study. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, it's so essential in our being. Um, I, I, I criticise other, other specialties, but you know, there's certain things that I just don't think I could, could, could get interested in, you know. That's true. That's very true. Because I suppose when it comes down to it, the fact that we are conscious, conscious beings per se, and we're self-aware of our own experiences due to our cognitive functioning. I mean, we can debate, we're not going to, on the, you know, how we got to the creation of consciousness, but let's not. That's all for That's not Einstein and for the, for the spiritual people of the world. That's not the world. But, but I suppose what I'm really trying to get at here is it is very true that the study of neuroscience and, and psychology, uh, I suppose, but neuroscience in particular, uh, it, it would go really deep into the details of how, I suppose, the emotional mind and the rational, logical mind kind of operate. I think there's a left, left yeah, hemisphere of the right hemisphere thing. Well, and again, it's more in the sort of psychology, psychiatry field. Mm. You know, my, my, and again, beyond my expertise, you know, Neurologists, we really come from internal medicine, so, mm-hmm. so we are predominantly physicians mm-hmm. who deal with the, the internal structure of the, the body. Um, interesting, in the United States, so, 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 neurology and so, uh, psychiatry were very much close together, so the neurologists would usually come out of the psychiatry field. Yeah. Okay. So initially it was, I think, the American Academy of Neurology and Psychiatry. Mm-hmm. So there's slightly different evolutions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, as much as I was really interested in the whole philosophy of uh, mind-brain interface mm, as a sure. teenager, you know, yeah. so as I've aged and worked, I've become much more pragmatic and grounded in the, the day-to-day uh, mechanics of things. I suppose it's a little more prudent, right? Yes. Because when, once you get more experience, you need to be really technically sound on what you're doing. Yeah. yeah. But having said that, you know, as a doctor, you know, there's a certain amount of scientific and technical expertise that's kind of assumed, and we should all have that, otherwise you don't pass medical school. Yeah. But really, the next layer on top of that is psychology, how you interact with your patient. Mm-hmm. And I'm the head of neurology at Charles Gardner, and um, you know, I deal with patient complaints a lot. And you know, almost exclusively patient complaints are about interaction and communication. Mm-hmm. And then it comes down to the time and psychology. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, that interaction, uh, even though we uh, sort of think sometimes that's a bit soft, uh, yeah. for want of a better term, it really is what people remember, and that's mm. important. You know, no one remembers how well the surgeon cut out uh, a tumour. They remember that interaction. Yeah. Um, 
if you make some mistakes. They remove the personality. Yeah. They have so many questions, uh, Dr. Blanker. Has there ever been a patient who says they might have undergone like a, an experience, like an out-of-body experience? And do you believe in out-of-body experiences or under the knife? I've done a bit of a reading about this. The, mm. the near-death experience. Mm. Um, so those are they're very stereotypical. You know, talk of the bright light mm. and you know, sort of feeling like you're outside yourself. You know, that seems to come up. Mm. Um, and I think the stereotypy of some of these descriptions is, is probably a structural brain phenomenon. Yeah. You know, you get core blood flow to the occipital cortex where your vision is perceived, yeah. uh, you get a graying out. Mm. So um, you know, I think the fact that you know, all throughout history when you have these near-death experiences, they have a, a sameness about them, mm. uh, probably is a re representation of our brains being very structurally similar. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, when the brain is um, starved of oxygen or low level of blood pressure, there are only certain ways the brain can react. Mm -hmm. And I suspect these near-death experiences are re a representation of that. Right. It's, yeah, sorry, it's a um, So again, there's so much uh, complexity to neurology and it's not, uh, it's so often confused with psychiatry and psychology, but they are interlinked, obviously, for yeah, so historical so, reasons. Yeah, yeah, so they're different. They're completely different specialties. Mm -hmm. Like I said, so in, in, in uh, Europe and in uh, England and Australia, the um, neurology, especially, is closely allied to internal medicine. Mm. And so we do our what we call a physician's examination, mm. um, which is a very high level uh, test of all your knowledge of the general system of the body heart, lungs, kidney, mm. brain, everything put together. Mm. And then once you pass that examination, you then have a three year program which is the apprenticeship phase that I talked about, mm. um, where you basically work as what's called an advanced trainee, and you go and see cases, and you report to your supervisor, discuss the case, and then gradually you gain more and more skills. And at the end of that three-year period, many uh, trainees will then embark on some further things called fellowships, which mm. is quite often an overseas stint um, at various institutions to gain even further specific knowledge. Mm. Um, so that's the sort of structure of the... And psychiatrists have their own different... Uh, structure of a training program, yeah. but they deal with the different set of conditions. Mm. Um, you know, things like major depressive disorders, psychosis mm. disorders like schizophrenia. So that sort of difference, uh, all of these things affect the brain. Yeah. Um, but the training and expertise is all slightly, um, slightly different. Yeah. The, the external forces that affect the brain, um, say for example hormones, uh, can they be regulated with diet and how does diet affect the brain? Look, again, I'm, it's not a great area of my expertise. There's been lots written about our diet, and there's an increasing recognition about the interaction between the uh, immune buildup of the gut, the microbiome, you might have heard that term, mm -hmm. um, and its interplay with the central nervous system. Right. And so I think there's a lot. So the gut has got its own separate nervous system, its own separate kind of ecosystem and immune system. Mm -hmm. And they're probably interactions that we still really don't fully understand. Mm. And you know, getting back to Parkinson's disease, there is a hypothesis that it begins in the at a gut level. Mm. Oh. Uh, many years, in fact, possibly even decades, with soft, soft operations in operations in bowel habit, mm. um, and, uh, and ultimately evading the central nervous system. Probiotics help. Would probiotics uh, help helps gut health? Mainly, or it's not known. Not known. Is, is still lots to learn about this interaction. Yeah. No. One of the uh, things that's uh, not on a list of our questions, but it is interesting because we've talked about it with Dr. Sure, well, at least of course we dabbled in it a little bit. It was uh, the introduction of cannabinoids and cannabis usage and dealing with stroke patients more frequently. Have you considered the option of possibly giving them medicinal marijuana as a... Not for stroke patients. Not for stroke patients. Cannabis has actually been shown to cause stroke. Oh, it's the exact opposite. opposite. One of the things that's been notoriously absent mm. in the entire debate. So mm. um, in, in neurology practice, mm. there's likely been an emerging role for a number of things, including pain, mm. spasticity, mm. which is the reaction of the limbs to problems of the brain or the spinal cord. Um, a role in some very rare forms of epilepsy. Mm. But for stroke, I'm very concerned. Mm. Um, and there have been case reports of cannabis, in fact, uh, inducing spasm of the blood vessel. 
So probably about 20 years ago, a great case report, the general stroke from Amsterdam. <laughs> yes. We'll try and find it. A young, young man, uh, he was getting an MRI scan because he had a strong family history aneurysm. So screening his blood vessels, doing an MRI angiogram, looking at the blood vessels of his brain. He's like, oh, spasmed up. Mm. He was just off the pot. Yeah. yeah. Off the pot. MRI shows the blood vessels open and nice. Yeah. And... So the, a colleague of mine in New Zealand reported a high incidence of young stroke uh, victims having a um, spasm of their blood vessels. And, and, I'm, and I'm heavy marijuana use. Yes, and I've, I've seen a patient on an artificial marijuana chronic hmm. came in one day with a stroke yeah. due to spasm. So um, they, my subspecialty field, I'm very concerned. And, um, I, I have no doubt that the, uh, the role of uh, uh, cannabis as a medicinal product will become refined. Hmm. Um, and nuanced with the passage of time and careful clinical study. Yeah. But I'm very concerned that one of the things that's happened here is there's been a somewhat emotional push to suddenly get cannabis into clinical practice, mm. which has exceeded the usual caution which we exercise with most drugs. Yeah. You know, if you've got a carefully designed drug, you don't rush it into practice no. because people want it. Mm. You study it carefully mm. in order to see if it's efficacious, and in order to make sure it's not doing harm. Mm. And when you take side steps and you take shortcuts, mm. there are examples, you only have to think of thalidomide, um, probably too young, you guys are too young to know about it. <laughs> um, you know, an anti-nauseum drug uh, in pregnancy that led to major limb deformity. Um, Vioxx, an anti-inflammatory drug mm. that was linked to heart attack and stroke. Um, so, so the reason for caution and conservatism and scientific approach is to make sure our patients don't harm. And that ties really nicely into the next question we've got for you. Um, one of the core criticisms of any hard science in the modern day, that is, mm. is that like what you're going um, towards there, is there isn't enough stringent, I suppose, huge uh, observation of the data set, and that some people that will try and push new fads into the system mm. will just support their their practice or their argument or their claim with data that just supports it rather than, um, you know, displaying the full deck of cards on the table, per se. So I suppose, what's your critique on on those uh, people within neurology at large and I suppose your opinion on, on science in general and how they do it? We'll start with neurology. Well, look, um, Getting back to my statement about the structure of the brain, mm, sure. you know, I think one of the things that we, the brain loves to see patterns, mm. okay? And you know, it's very stereotypical that the brain is, uh, thinks that something's going to happen, so you fill in a gap to, to, make, it, yeah. to make it so. Mm. We, we like order. Mm. And so sometimes we adjust our world, we adjust our facts to suit that phenomenon, mm. even if it's not the reality of the world. Okay, so yeah. that's where the objectiveness is required. Mm. And so people love to see patterns, the brain loves to see patterns, and sometimes we can, you know, so we had a red moon, mm. you know, that means you're going to have bad sun, uh, bad harvest the next year. Yeah, right. You know, so for <laughs> millennia, mm. you know, people have been seeing patterns and trying to make things happen. Mm. And that's when we can fool ourselves, really. Yeah, exactly. It's so kind of the idea of just saying, like, for example, novice example, if I'm to agree, you're to agree, Larry's to agree, that doesn't mean this is objective truth. That just means there's three men that can agree on one point. And we might disagree, we might disagree yeah. on everything else. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And look, I think one of the issues, uh, more general issues, is you, know, you only have to look at how people are gathering their new sources. Yes. Yeah. You know, and how the uh, technology sort of feeds you the stuff that you always search. And it so does, yeah. Positively reinforce your Keeps you safe online kind yeah, of thing. So subject. I, and I personally think that we're, be, we're becoming less adept at seeking out independent opinions, mm. we're less adept at um, um, more original thinking, mm. and uh, I, I think we're actually going to get done. Yeah. Yes, I, we, we do say this to a lot of our guests that we, we talk to before we get them on the show, and it's like one of the core things on the podcast is we, Larry and I do believe there is some sort of a false stagnation, per se. Mm. Not that other people aren't smart, it's just like going back to what you said, there isn't enough original thinking. Well, I think from a neuroscience perspective, you know, you think about a fact, you know, when you want to think about oh, the capital of some, some city, it's Google. There's no effort in that. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. Whereas, yeah. You know, when I was at university, if you wanted to have 
look up something, you'd have to go to uh, an index, yeah, uh, a big book like this, <laughs> and look at the topic. Yeah. And then you'd have to go up to the third floor of the library into the fifth bookshelf yeah. and look it up. Yeah. And the actual process of actually finding knowledge requiring extra effort mm. actually probably consolidates the neural pathways. Mm. And I'm aware of some educational research out of Japan that looked at screen learning versus book learning. So the same content um, on a screen versus on a book. And they tested the university students and the book learners won. Well, there you go. Probably the theory is that there's a tactile experience moving the page. there's a sort of memory of you know the layout of the page, mm-hmm. you know, where the graph was, where the illustration was. Yeah. There's a smell of the texture of the book. There's a lot of senses. Yeah. Whereas you know you flip, flip, you can get lost. You know I don't know reading my Kindle at night. Sure. Yeah. You know, you know, where was I? You know. Yeah. Land. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Whereas in your book you've got the dog eat page. Mm. Yeah. And from a neural pathway consolidation perspective, it kind of makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. So in fact, if you uh, there's a lot of. Uh, ideas of how language evolved in consort with the development of dexterity in the hand. Okay. So the language area and the dominant hemisphere of the brain is very close to the hand area. Mm-hmm. And so when man just developed ancient tools, it was kind of at the same time language developed. Okay. So there's interplay between hand motor function mm-hmm. and language. And the speech therapists are very interested in that. You know? yeah. So sometimes we see patients who have a lot of, you know, has a stroke patient who can't talk and has a paralysed hand. So mm. put a lot of effort in, say, the hand function, yeah. the speech gets better, yeah. or vice versa. I've got expert academic speech pathologists who are really interested in that phenomenon. Hmm. Yeah, because I suppose when you were talking and expressing yourself, if you're using hand movements per se, you were trying to express a point, you're trying to convey, you're trying to relate and express it through studies are looking at average IQ over mm. the decades. Mm. So is IQ still a good measure of intelligence or is it something that should be investigated on a per individual uh, basis? Beyond my area of experience. I suppose, look, just, just as an aside for mm. now, for just me and Larry, we're trying to get at the fact that IQ today is just a measure towards mm. yeah. the roles that society is demanding, mm. really. I mean, if you think about it, what's in demand right now? Software engineering, um, being able to do raw entrepreneurship, get a business from zero to one, knowing the markets, uh, analysing and being very technically savvy with what you're doing. Now, I'm not taking anything away from these individuals, they're obviously very smart people, Mm. but put them in a different era, I mean, it could be very different. Because I mean, look, it's gone from brawn brawn to brain, right? I mean, when we were, you know, I don't know if we want to go towards Darwinism, but, you know, it, when we were cavemen before that, you know, we evolved and then became cavemen, that, you know, physical superiority was, you know, a must. And now it's kind of like, well, if you live in a, a comfortable country that's well protected by good borders, then it's kind of like, well, you don't necessarily need it. But then again, I mean, it's, it's not bad to have a good package yeah. uh, in terms of, you know, a product. Yeah. Yeah. So you're predicting the muscle men by devolve and... Uh, Maybe, I mean, I think that's what, it's kind of already happened to an extent, but yeah. Uh, I think it's the thing, thing right, that, yeah. as a little guy, that sounds good to me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, that's... I don't know if that would exactly happen, though, but it's interesting to sort of predict... The, I guess, yeah. Make predictions of the future, it's obviously. Pure speculation yeah. over here. Yeah. Hard facts. Hard facts say over there, there. Over speculative over here. Yes, okay. That's the whole point. So... How is there any way that a person, and we've already spoken about this earlier in the podcast, but are there any any other ways in which a person can enhance their mental capabilities over time? So diet would be one, proper sleep, drinking water. Well, I, I think the core thing, although having disparaged physical activity in, in muscle men, mm, yeah. is pure physical activity. 
Mm-hmm. So increasing cerebral blood flow to the brain is one of the very few things that has been shown to enhance brain volume. Mm-hmm. And so there have been some... We know that brains shrink. Mm-hmm. Once you get to the age of 50, yeah. uh, it has been shown on observational studies that the size of the frontal lobe and the memory circuitry gradually reduces, mm-hmm. uh, probably about 0.3% per year. And so... Um, so you guys still got a way to go. Yeah, yeah. Let's uh, let's look forward to that, Larry. So there's good things to look forward to. So there has been a study that has looked at careful what we call volumetric analysis of those brain regions, and they did this uh, to a group of healthy individuals around about 60 years of age, and uh, half of them did simple physical activity. I think 45 minutes of treadmill activity three times per week. Not terribly vigorous, just enough to make them a bit sweaty, shorter breaths. And the other half, they just did some stretching exercises. They looked at the brain volume uh, in the two groups. And they demonstrated that in the exercise group, very modest exercises I've illustrated, um, they had a slight increase, about 0.1 or something, um, compared to the normal decrement of 0.3. Mm-hmm. And so the lines did converge. Mm-hmm. And so that's a very important take-home message. And probably what's actually happening in those patients is that we're actually probably, not all patients, people, is that we're just enhancing cerebral blood flow um, you, you've heard of stem cells, yes. so the brain yeah. has areas of the brain that would release what we call neuroprogenin stem cells around the fluid cavities deep inside the brain, and probably pumping extra blood enhances that release. Mm. And so, you know, there's this vote because there are lots of mental activity, do sudoku and do crosswords. Yeah. That's probably a very little value, mm. uh, particularly once you become expert at a task, the value of enhancing um, neuro, neural connectedness wanes. Yeah. So once the task is easy, yeah. Yeah. lost the value of it. So you see these people doing this and keep doing it, they probably lost, lost maybe, the maybe, benefit from maybe it. Yeah, months ago. Maintenance of the vehicle per se, mm. in order to yeah. further uh, perform the task that the vehicle is designed to do. So, so it's probably, yeah. yeah. But, but So I'm just getting back. Oh, sure. Really the only thing we've shown thus far is to stimulate those pathways and enhance brain volume is physical exercise. Mm. And you probably don't need you know, extraordinary amounts, mm. just modest amounts. Awesome. And there's other effects on mood and uh, uh, also in the rest of your body that are probably very important because cardiovascular health um, is extremely important. Getting back to diet and things. Um, again, there's been some observations uh, out of the Scandinavia that's looked at cohorts of patients from their 40s through to their 70s mm. and looked at cognitive functioning. And they've uh, had patients, so one group, that's led a quite spartan lifestyle, mm. tight diet, decreased fat, no smoking, minimal alcohol, exercise, versus a more, you know, freewheeling type of sure. uh, group. Mm-hmm. And the, the spartan group clearly had better cognitive functioning in their 60s. Mm. So we do know that your cardiovascular health and general fitness and probably your diet mm-hmm. in midlife is predictive of cognitive function later in life. Mm-hmm. There you go. And so there's always been search for... Mm-hmm. magical drugs that stimulate brain. Can all, I can yeah. almost hear anyone that's listening jump on the treadmill right now. Exactly. That's not terribly deep neuroscience. It's a relief that it's not an overly complicated okay. process yeah. to, to do it, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's not like, oh, go to see your local neurologist yeah. and brain scans and then we can see what's wrong with you. Although that could always be just, an alternative. Just, just on that, when it comes to brain scans and MRIs, is there any kind of proof to that that might be harmful or is that conjecture? Well, or? MRI's been around for 30 odd years now and the, it does not appear to have been any issues. Okay. Remembering the MRI technology is based upon using a magnet to generate the picture, not a radiation. Oh, okay. So So CT scan is, yeah. gives you a definite radiation exposure, yeah. mm-hmm. and we do tend to avoid uh, trying to do lots of CTs, particularly in younger people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and where patients need ongoing follow-up scans, we definitely prefer MRIs to CTs because of that uh, radiation exposure. Sure. Absolutely. So we're moving towards, I suppose, the final two questions and then just, just some free-thinking commentary kind of thing. So I suppose this is a bit of a deeper question, but this is just, you know, an opinion. And uh, what are your thoughts on the whole science-religion debate? Now, I personally am a secularist, in a sense, which means that it's more towards the agnostic side of things, just because I find that 
a lot of scientific men that I've studied and read in books. Um, Einstein is one. There's a, there's a lot of people that come from religious upbringings that practice science or practice science that later in life can't justify their view of the world without a higher kind of consciousness or anything like that. So, so I suppose, yeah, what's your take on this kind of debate that everyone's been doing since the dawn of time, you know? I'm not a religious person sure. by any means. Sure. Um, I personally think it gets back to the structure of the brain. Yeah. You know, like I said, people for millennia have had this very idea about uh, you know, an afterlife or a greater being or yeah. something else hanging there. Um, Okay, you know, I think these are probably stereotypical patterns built into our into our brain. So instead to just look up in the sky and go, is yeah. the big man in the sky yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. And why you know, all these different cultures have a fairly similar way of yeah. putting things together. Different stories, same and, kind of message. And exactly, and the brains are all the same. Mm. So yeah. I think what that tells you is that maybe this is generated internally. Yeah. It's a comfort measure to and explain things. It's again, it's a pattern. Sure. It's a pattern. And uh, yeah, uh, that's my take. No, fair enough. Fair it's very concise. Sounds like exactly. a very simple thing, really. No, 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 absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, I suppose, yeah, on, you mentioned earlier a little bit about neuroplasticity. I think I might, I might be forgetting or recalling this incorrectly in this moment. But what's your thoughts on neuroplasticity? Well, look, you know, uh, Probably about eight or nine years ago, there's this very big vogue for neuroplasticity, this hot new topic. Yeah. Um, Norman Doidge, a famous psychiatrist who wrote a series of excellent books, really popularised and brought it to attention. But it's something we've known for years. You know, I used to work at Shen Park as a rehabilitation neurologist. And uh, neuroplasticity really just refers to the adaptation of the nervous system to a structural injury. And the same processes that drive neuroplasticity are quite similar to educational processes. Yeah. You know, so repetitive task-specific exercise, um, physical activity as well, mm-hmm. um, focused exercise, drives the recruitment of different neural pathways. So a simple formula, if you have a neuron on the surface of the brain, depending upon where it is, there is some degree of redundancy of the circuitry, so particularly in language area and to a lesser extent in the motor pathways. So if you damage a neuron here, its neighbouring neurons can then you pick up some of the slack. Right. And um, with the course of time uh, and good therapy, that sort of stimulates that to occur. Um, there are different regions in the brain that have different uh, neuroplastic potentials. Um, if you damage the visual pathways of the, what we call the occipital cortex, much more tougher path for recovery due to the complexity of the uh, visual pathways. Um, if you damage language pathways, much easier. If you damage the base of the brain where all the wires are coming down towards the spinal cord, much less plastic, much less difficult for those wires to move around. A lot around. of nerve endings, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, so you can have one centimetre damage in the front of your right frontal lobe yeah. that, you know, maybe very detailed neuropsychological testing yeah. might uncover some deep alteration in your perception of tonality of music or voice. <clears throat> yeah. And that same one centimetre bit, the base of your brain is you completely paralysed all your arms and all your legs. Wow. So it depends upon where in the nervous system the injury occurs. Brilliant. Well, that moves us right along to, I suppose, the last 25 to 30? Yeah, it feels like it. Yeah. Um, Dr. uh, Blaker, what would be probably most interesting patient that you've dealt with? Oh, look, I... Without discussing... Without discussing uh, directly. Well, look, I've got... I don't want to put one patient in front of the others. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've had many... uh, I mean, the ones that I remember are the ones who've been through really tough times mm. and I've travelled their journey. Yeah. Um, I'm sure perhaps one of my, my most famous patients won't mind me mentioning his name is Peter Coleman, mm-hmm. uh, C-O-G-H-L-A-N. He's the author of a book called In the Blink of an Eye. Mm-hmm. And uh, hi, Peter. Sure. <laughs> would, would Peter mind us plugging his book if we could find it? For yeah, him? have a look on the internet. Yeah, sure. He, uh, his story is very well documented. And uh, he had one of the most devastating kind of strokes called a locked-in stroke, right. where he uh, had a stroke at the back of his brain. And um, the locked-in syndrome refers to a situation where patients can um, can make no movements of their limbs. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they have struggled to breathe. Mm-hmm. Um, the only thing they might be able to do is subtly move their eyes, 
literally just blinking. Mm. And that was his situation. And um, I looked at Peter and I knew I knew that was the case. And at that time, I was actually, I'd read Norman George's book and I had a real fresh um, <laughs> bout of enthusiasm. And sure. I knew Peter was actually quite a fit guy. He'd uh, previously been in the British Army. Okay. And he was only in his 30s. Right. And I could look at his scan carefully and I could see that... Um, it wasn't a complete damage. There were some certain little pathways that were getting through the base of the brain. Mm-hmm. They were only incompletely damaged. And I thought that if they could just get there, he could do something. And he started by just moving his toe a little bit. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I, um, I said, I, I, I spoke to him every day. I said, I know you're in there. I know you can uh, hear me. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm confident that you'll improve. I took him over to Shen Park, which mm-hmm. was the rehabilitation sure. of the class, and he worked like a living champion. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Unbelievable. Yeah. And uh, he walked out of Shen Park, and I still feel a bit chilled thinking about it. Wow. It's a complete recovery, right? Oh, he's like, still got it. Sorry, I mean, like, from backboard it was yeah. remarkable. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It did, uh, he's, you know, Peter still has issues. Right, of course. Um, but, but noticeably different. I challenged him to walk the... Uh, Sydney to surf. Oh, wow. Okay. He said, oh, I did a 12K. 12K, yeah. And uh, I was very proud to walk with him. Oh, it's about five or six years ago. Yeah. So probably about three or four years after the stroke, uh, we, we did the 12K Sydney to surf. Sydney to surf on a wet, rainy, horrible day. <laughs> took us hours and he got a blister on his foot a couple of Ks in, but he wasn't going to stop. Yeah. And he, uh, he got there and... Uh, they're packing all up everything at the end of it. <laughs> so the, all the bits and pieces were coming out. I think the police were trying to get us on the road. <laughs> but we, we, we got there. And, uh, yeah, wow. And Peter and I have been in good contact ever since. And, yeah. um, it's a good story. Yeah, it's a great story. Yeah, yeah. It's an inspiring story. Right. And um, I had many other patients that I'm sure... Those moments in particular, I suppose, inspire you to do what you do, right? Mm-hmm. Because yeah. they're the noticeable things that stand out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and look, I mean, um, again, I just tell my residents of registration hearing, you, you're dealing with patients in the most challenging time and stressful time mm. of their life, and that makes the work meaningful. Mm. Um, quite often, my work is tiring and demanding, and I have to make decisions and big decisions for people, and um, it's very stressful. Um, but you think about some of those cases, and wow. Now I can't imagine myself doing anything. Sure, sure. Yeah, so uh, I suppose, Dr. Blacker, what was uh, the experience, and this is a funny question to ask, because Larry and I are both young men, mm-hmm. but did you ever feel that you like, made it per se? Because I feel as though I've got that hunger within me that, you know, I, I'll never make it, so to speak. I'll be satisfied. People around me will say, Mason, you made Mason, it. you've got a great life. Or vice versa, yeah. they'll be like, Larry, you made it. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, off government handouts. Or, you know, <laughs> what I'm trying to say is, when it comes down to it, is there a time specifically in your life where you can pinpoint saying, yes, I'm established, this is it, I've, I've found like a consistent... I suppose, pattern of work, I think this system works for me, or is there always improvements along the way? To me, it's all a bit of a blur. I mean, yeah, there are highlights, you know, the birth of my kids, mm-hmm. my marriage. Yeah, you know, it's, it's all this other stuff. It's not, yeah. It's, yeah. It's not, not just work. You know, wedding day. Yeah, of course. He's getting bored. Of course. Um, these, these, are, these are the big things. Yeah. Uh, and these are common to everybody. Always a good hope. Um, but professionally, um, one of my um, mentors and colleagues did admit to me that he didn't really feel like he was comfortable until about 10 years after he graduated as a specialist. Okay. And so yeah. that was quite reassuring to hear that because there's always uncertainty. Mm. And I think one of the things I don't like to see in trainees and applicants is a um, too much cockiness. Mm. Um, you need to be aware of your boundaries. You need to be understanding your limitations. Mm. Um, and more recently I've become even more aware of that as I've become sick myself mm. um, I'm acutely aware of the fact that perhaps my capacities are going to decline mm. um, I'm at the other end of the curve compared to you guys sure. and um, it's a spectrum I don't think there's any single moment um, you get your fancy bit of paper and have your graduation yeah. especially 
But it's, it's interesting that you put this at 10 years because I suppose everyone that enters the workforce initially, you're operating under the leadership, you're being mentored, you're learning the ropes. And for the first few years, a few people will feel like they're an imposter yeah. for a little bit yeah. until they find their feet and get a nice flow. This is not every person. I'm not yeah. speaking on behalf of everyone, but, but I suppose this is a very common human experience when it comes to grounding yeah. themselves. Yeah, and I think medicine is a separate level. Yeah, for me. Yeah. 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 And also helping your seeds. That there are certain things that get easier as you get older. Mm. You know, um, I've seen these things before. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the first time I've seen it, you don't know what's going to happen. Okay. I think one of the benefits of aging, particularly in my profession, is that you can say to a patient, "Oh, look, I've had several patients like you. I can kind of know what's going to happen." Yeah. And with the grey hair, that's more convincing. Yeah. <laughs> they go, "Oh, this is great." I can always see like a fresh young guy just dyeing his hair grey. Maybe like you know, putting on some some mustache. It does help when you can honestly say to the patients, you know, I've looked after patients, and I've also I've also been through the situation with families many times. Um, you know, and often you'll have situations where they have to family might need to participate in some really big decisions. Yeah. Relative, and having been through that a number of times, uh, it's very helpful. Isn't it? You can deal with it without your heart rate getting super fast. Yeah. Uh, and you can be, you, you can actually offer more help. It's one of the, and because I'm not a surgeon doing mm. procedures, mm. you know, older, older surgeons will lose their mental dexterity and things, and there will be a peak of their powers. Mm. Um, I've said to my my youngest son, he's said, you're a physics. Um, you know, I saw some stat about physics. Physicists and mathematicians mm. been on the way in after about 29. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, you get really intense brain power, far in excess of anything I've got. Mm. Uh, you know, those theoretical physicists and mm. mathematicians, you know, mm. they're, they're peaks in their late, late 20s. Late 20s, yeah. yeah. As far as I understand. Fair enough. Fair so, because so, you mentioned earlier, there's much more to your life than just work. So, exterior to work, what are you passionate about? Like, is there, a, yeah, do you find serenity and tranquility in anything exterior to it? Mm. Well, the track, probably my most, uh, my wife kind of pushed me into doing yoga a few okay. years ago. And um, you want to be tranquil, you have a good yoga session. And, uh, yeah, um, mm. done And uh, I now go at least once a week, maybe twice a week. And uh, with Parkinson's, that's actually really, I find really helpful to stretch my body and my mm. limbs. Um, there is certainly a calmness about yoga, which I really respect, and I kind of want to do more of that. It's helped my golf too. Yeah. Yeah. Control breathing. Yeah. Yeah. I might have a tough four foot part and a couple of yoga breaths. Well, what's what's your uh, your long game specialist or a short game? Uh, more short game these days, um, just because I've lost flexibility. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, I used to play a lot as a young kid. Sure. When your body can bend and flex, yeah. you see these professional women play, you know, five foot three, yeah. it's just smash yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Coordination, time, oh, yeah. flexibility. Yeah. Um, it's, it's really fast. I mean, anyone that knocks golf is like, okay, try it. Are you, are you that good? Yeah. It's, yeah. Funny. it's a common thing. It's yeah. a common thing. Oh, well, golf's boring. Well, have you tried? Like, seriously, it's, it's a match. It is quite a good way because I can't actually think about just go for four or five hours and mm. play it. Yeah. And just kind of forget about work. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's why a lot of older people like it. Mm. So, that is part and parcel of neurological care is giving yourself the off moments, the quiet time to just reflect and. Uh, give your brain not exactly the same sort of workout that does the day-to-day -day routine to have those relaxing moments. Oh, look, with any job, you need to be recharged. Mm. I mean, it'd be impossible to push yourself all the time. And, mm. and you need that perspective on the world. Mm. You know, it's doctors who don't know anything else about how the rest of the world Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it'd be, it'd be funny if, like, you know, you're just in your own bubble and you know, you didn't know that there was impending doom. He was just like doing like a doing well for me if I was just writing a book, you know, mm. that that would be that would be the moment, right? I'm so immersed in writing my next novel and I, I don't know what's going on. So I'm about to publish it and no one's gonna read it. That's quite dire, but yeah. yeah. Uh, a little dire, but I like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have dark sense of humor. So I guess 
Pretty much. Pretty much. I think this is a quick one. Another really important thing. Just push it. We've got time. We've got time. We've got plenty of time, but we just make sure that we're not stretching the limits of your time. Well, my other big passion and role is uh, with research as well. And mm-hmm. As I cut my clinical stuff down, I work at a place called the Perrin Institute, uh, which is a uh, one of the most established and oldest medical institutes in Western Australia. Mm-hmm. And um, in the latter phase of my career, I've really hoping to push my work there a little bit more. Um, I'm involved in a really exciting uh, scientific group that's working on a neuroprotective drug okay. for stroke. Okay. And um, one of the... Uh, things about stroke is the urgency of time and uh, in day-to-day practice we have so we do have successful treatments for the clotting kind of stroke where we either use a dissolving drug to break up the clot to minimize the damage or mechanically pull it out by extra specialists and uh, but the problem is you know if the clot's sitting there for too long it does irreversible damage to the brain and um, it's okay if you have a stroke in West Perth or Netherlands five minutes from Charles Garden you can get there quickly yeah. That uh, if you have a stroke in kind of Nara or Albany or Esperance, yeah. it's a long way to come. Yeah. These, yeah. these treatments, um, the advanced treatments, are really only done in a few critical places around Australia. And uh, what the, the, the uh, scientists at the Perrin Institute have come up with, this particular group I'm working with, which uh, is just part of a very big research organisation, is some drugs that look at uh, prolonging the, the uh, or minimising the damage that the clot's doing to the brain. So they're getting really close with their, their scientific laboratory work. Are they public or are they very um, secretive? With no, no, no. This is all scientific. Oh, we'll, we'll, find, we'll find it, and I suppose yeah, we'll get a link to that. Look, yeah. And the great hope is that uh, if we can come up with this drug and get it really sorted into the human sphere, um, someone calls me out from Kananaris as a patient having a stroke. We can give the drug. Yeah. It gives us time to fly them down for a phone doctor to get the definitive treatment so it buys the brain more time. Mm-hmm. Very cool. And uh, we're making some really good advances on that at the moment. And uh, watch out for that. Yeah. Be a no, for That's sure. Well, really cool. any medical advancement is welcome. Obviously. Oh, and look, there's a lot of really good stuff happening at the parent um, and in other research institutes. Um, one of the scientists there has got the a very, uh, very good treatment for muscular dystrophy. Just yeah. terrible muscle-wasting disease of young men. Right. Uh, you might have seen they're basically in wheelchairs by their early teens and yeah. by their late teens, early 20s. Devastating. So it's excruciating. And uh, one of the really super scientist groups there have come up with a drug that doesn't cure it, but modifies the effect of this genetic disease. Mm. So when I was in medical school, you know, the thought of being actually able to have a treatment for a genetic disease was just Ridiculous, you don't need to treat a genetic disease. There's complex ways which I won't go through, but this drug that they've actually evolved from over a 20 year period has now uh, been used in groups of boys with something called Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Mm-hmm. Um, and instead of being wheelchair bound, they're, they're continuing to walk into their late teens, early 20s. It's mm-hmm. um, a spectacular thing. Right, yeah. um, you know, a paradigm shift almost beyond. Uh, no, you know, Nobel Prize type of stuff here. Yeah. And the great thing about that is that it's unlocking the idea that if you can identify the genetic defect, you can tell it, mate, a drug mm. that helps to ameliorate that defect. Sure. So you know, there's been lots of you know, the Human Genome Project, identification of many diseases, but what's really going to advance that now is the fact that there can be treatments for these diseases. Mm. Um, so maybe 15, 20, 30 years ago, you, know, you could find the disease, but you could just give genetic advice. Yeah. yeah. Now that you can actually treat some it's of these diseases, yeah. uh, even uh, motor neuron disease, terrible yeah. disease. There's a lab group of parents looking pretty darn close to being able to identify some possible treatments for a rare subset of patients who had um, uh, gen- genetic motor neuron disease. So we're really you know, in Western Australia. We've got some really good stuff. Wow. Yeah, just on that, it's, how long does it take for these young body group of scientists or a collection of scientists per se to come up with this stuff? How long are they working on the forefront of this stuff before it's kind of like, you know, it can on be the decades, so decades? It's been thought that, you know, if you say, if you see uh, a drug company want to come up with a new drug to treat a new disease, yeah. um, the, the average quote is to get, is it's a decade and a billion dollars. Okay. Now you think about developing a new drug from scratch, yeah. 
doing an experimental data and then go through clinical trials to replace existing drugs. It's a lot of work. Yeah. It, these are huge things. Mm. So that's why I was a little bit critical earlier on about medical you know, jumping to yeah, jumping to the into it. Yeah, because the actual scientific process, and, and probably with the course of time, there's going to be advances in in the way we do our clinical trials, mm. utilising technologies and AI and things to, yeah. to speed up the process to maybe cut out the dead end sort of potentials mm. and to get quickly to the answers. Yeah, that actually brings up a good point, Larry. You know exactly where we're going with probably this next one. Can I, can I ask you a little Yeah. yeah. Is there, do you think that potentially in the future when it comes to neurology there will be a Neuralink, like an electronic... By Elon Musk. Like the, the Elon Musk. Kind of yeah, yeah. Right yeah. Do you think that would be more common? Download your secretary. Yeah, yeah download your secretary. It's mortal. Almost. But just to even assist in um, those sort of effects, much like uh, strokes, much like uh, any other sort of neurological based condition. Yeah, I think there will be, I think there will be mm. new things. Mm. Um, this whole idea of brain computer interfaces has mm. been really interesting. I'll see it. Uh, yeah. There's already some idea about inserting a very small sensor. Let's say someone who's paralysed, who's got a high spinal cord injury, sure. um, potentially actually inserting a small sensor over what we call the, the, the motor cortex. Sure. So when you actually think about a movement, you actually generate a little electrical impulse. Okay. And you can imagine actually uh, thinking about moving your leg, and that signal gets Bluetooth to a series of electrodes which stimulate your leg right. muscles to contract oh, it. Mind blowing so stuff. Yeah. You can imagine that. No. So those kind of ideas are. Are out there at the yeah. moment. So, is there anything like that in Perth, or is it more or less? I hope so. That's what I started thinking about. Mm. But, you mm. know, I have seen groups that are talking about in insertion of these, like you know, um, Bluetooth device mm. adjacent to the motor by putting it into the vein in the middle portion of the brain, right. um, and then constructing. Uh, um, so, so there's already been some work uh, published in the US recently about. Uh, Neural stimulators at lower spinal cord level that sort of stimulate the, 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 the nerves that come down into your legs that generate the motor gait pattern. Yeah. So, um, well, there's lots of cool stuff going yeah. on. Yeah. <laughs> well, if anything, it is the inspiration. Yes. And it does drive this very and, pragmatic science. And, and I think in the next, right, right now, there's a lot more interaction um, between clinicians and, you know, and, and, and scientists and uh, you, you know, engineers. Looking at the integration of technology and devices into medical therapies, mm. um, you know, I was just talking about the example of you know gaming devices. That you, yeah, of yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I think we're going to have the use of uh, our really clever engineers um, mm. in combination with our pharmacologists to develop drugs that that actually get into uh, um, tough places like cancer cells and clots, based upon some of the physical properties of the drug. So in my, in my field of stroke, there's already been an idea that um, if you've got a clot sitting in a, in a blood vessel, where the clot is, there's a column of stagnant blood just before there. So you inject the drug and the drug never gets there because of the slow flow. Imagine the dam, mm. you've got a room slowing down. Mm. So the action's happening at the wall of the dam. But the drug doesn't get there because the, 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 the flow of current is reduced. Right. And so what these guys have done is actually tag nanos, magnetically charged nanos, nanoparticles right. onto the drug, so yeah. the iron, and then they put an electric beam, a magnetic beam on the other side to suck the drug mm. using the magnetic right. tag into the clot. Yeah. I had to visualise that. I hope I got it right in my mind. Yeah, and so the, so this interaction between is there, high level is there something out there to see visually online for something similar to that, or is it still in the development stage? Oh, there's a couple of published little papers. Oh, there are. Right, okay, yeah. 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 Um, Magnetic nanospheres. Magnetic nanospheres. Just email me, and I can. Yeah, sure, of course, of course. So I mean, the, the the medicine of the future is going to involve a lot more collaboration with you know people who in the past you know engineers. Physicists, um, particle tech, nano specialists, and things like that, information technologists. Yeah. Uh, I think it's going to be a really exciting time. A lot more collaboration among the physicists. Once sort of separate fields under the, yeah. the unifier of science and hard science. And look, even, even in you know, marketing and entrepreneurs. Sure. Like I had uh, one of my young residents, um, he, I think he'd done some sort of short course through. Um, MIT or someone at Stanford, one of the big US institutions, mm. and they had this idea of um, uh, you know really focused uh, uh, questionnaires to specialists. What 
problems do you need to solve in your area? Mm-hmm. And yeah, the specialists came up with, oh, yeah, I want this and this. And then they had a tech, a technicians that could design something to solve the mechanical problem in the surgical sphere. Mm-hmm. So, you know, focus sort of entrepreneurs, business people getting together, how to develop a solution to a problem. Yeah. So I'm always about collaboration. I reckon it's really cool when it is. different specialties get together. It is, it is. It gives, I suppose, more light on, a, a, I suppose, a completely black photograph. You see, you'll see, you'll put your light on it, they will see it, he'll put his light on yeah, it, and we'll, yeah. put, and we'll expose the image together, mm-hmm. and we'll see the bigger picture. And, and you know, it's probably it's back, you know, I talk about people's you know, this thought patterns that go in sort of, Standard way. Yeah. If you get someone coming from another angle, another angle, yeah. that probably makes a better solution. Yeah, I, I love I love the quote by Michael Munger, and he mm. says that the, the rate of a first rate intelligence. He's, he's a libertarian in the United States, by yeah. the way. Uh, he says that uh, the rate of a first rate intelligence is to hold two opposing ideas in your mind at the same time. Mm. It's a very difficult thing to do when you think about it mm. and I suppose you probably couldn't do that in synchronicity in its entirety because you need to go this is that perspective and that's that perspective and you probably wouldn't be able to focus it uh, 100% but then again it depends on the individual right mm. depends on the individual okay. I think that's a nice way to wrap it up that is okay guys I'll wrap it up yeah, yeah. very good to meet you very good to meet you send me the link and absolutely no problem yeah. no problem uh, we'll just we'll just wrap up. Uh, obviously, uh, we'll leave uh, links uh, to anything that you'd like to allow people to look at. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then, as per usual, donations are always welcome. Just down below. Um, it's been it's been a great yeah, honour. It's um, been so really, really good, really good, well, very fascinating, fascinating stuff. And uh, I hope that my brain is is larger. But I suppose <laughs> it's just <laughs> to exercise. Yes, <laughs> 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 guys. <laughs>